Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark. This morning we are continuing in our series in this wonderful gift of a book in our scriptures. We're looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Please join me in prayer. Well, Father, I agree with Bart's prayer earlier, Father. Our our hearts are full of gratefulness to you for the gift of this church, for the means of grace that it has been in our lives. Father, we come before you now, grateful to come together to hear from you through your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to us and ask now, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see your glory, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would grant us a sense of your greatness and a, a sight of your glory that completely changes us. Father, your word says in Isaiah 55 that it will accomplish that for which you sent it. So do that now. Father, plow deeply in us. Help us to put aside all those things that are on our mind and and distracting us and that are weighing us. Help us Help us to put those down now and fix our gaze upon you. I pray that you would Let not a single soul leave this room unchanged today, Lord, that you would convict the sinner and comfort the penitent, that you would encourage the faint-hearted. We pray this in the only name by which we might be saved, in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now please follow along now as I read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and 
told it in the city and in the country, and people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. When the year 1949, John Ronald Ruel Tolkien finished his masterpiece when he submitted his long-anticipated epic, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy. With over 150 million copies sold and theatrical versions produced, it is certainly one of the best-selling and most-loved stories of all time, and for very good reason. I remember while reading the second book in the trilogy, The Two Towers, the section on the redemption of King Theoden. Theoden became king of Rohan after the death of his father. He was a young man, and after ruling for over 40 years, he was growing weak and and tired and, and frail. He began to increasingly take counsel from his chief counselor, Grima Wormtongue. And one day, Gandalf shows up in Theoden's castle. Theoden appears brittle, discolored, and somewhat out of his mind. He was a shell of the man that he was once, and there appeared no hope as he was apparently governed by the spirit of a dark power. But Gandalf was undeterred. He came in with authority. He came in and marched right up with his mind set on the redemption of the king. He pulled out his staff, rebuked Grima Wormtongue, fixed his gaze on Theoden, and commanded the dark power of Saruman to leave him. If you've read the stories or if you've, if you've seen the movies, you know what happens. Theoden starts to convulse and he falls over. And when he arises, he looks up and, and slowly, but certainly, his color is restored. He comes into his right mind and he looks about as a renewed man. And, and then Gandalf has, Th- has Theoden's sword placed back into his hand, for he had work for him to do. It is one of the most beautiful scenes in the trilogy, in my mind, because it depicts the redemption of a man in whom many had written off hope for. They looked at him and and just saw him as as gone, as as a wasted man. No hope. And it's it's a beautiful representation of what we read about here in Mark chapter 5 this morning. While while the Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite books to read to my sons and, and for my own enjoyment, it is, alas, a work of fiction. But what we read here in, in Mark chapter 5 is no work of fiction. It is a faithful recounting of the redemptive work of God in the face of evil oppression. 
And it is told in great detail. It's, a, it's an unusual narrative in the Gospel of Mark because Mark is typically brief in his telling of these narratives. And in this one, he takes time and he gives a lot of detail of what's going on. What, why is that? Not only because Mark wants to confront our materialistic worldview, that which has no place for, for the spiritual, for the supernatural, which this does, but also because Mark wants us to see that while there are all kinds of real powers at work against us, battling against the kingdom of God, Jesus' power is greater. His power is unrivaled. His power alone is supreme. And so this is my prayer this morning for you and I, for our church, that we would be awakened to the reality of the warfare waged against the kingdom of God. That we would be granted conviction in the unrivaled power of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That He would grant us faith for the Lord to completely redeem you and I and anyone that the Lord sets His sights on. And that He would send us out with a renewed passion to proclaim His marvelous grace. That's my prayer. If I were to summarize the point of this passage, I would put it this way. What Mark wants us to see is this. The power of God for redemption will not be thwarted. Jesus' power for redemption cannot be thwarted. We're going to look at this passage through three scenes this morning. Scene one, Jesus' power over evil. Scene two, Jesus' power to completely redeem. And scene three, Jesus' power provokes proclamation. All right, scene one. Last week, we heard from our brother, Joel Shorey, who, who traveled here. We're so grateful for the gift of partnership and sovereign grace and for the gifted uh, brothers that, that come and serve us through the Word. We heard a wonderful sermon on this previous passage, Mark chapter 4, on the storms at the sea. So grateful to hear about Jesus' power over the wind and the waves. And now this morning, we read this passage. It picks up. They, they, they got into the boat last week. They started to cross over to the side, to the other side. And this morning, they've arrived at the other side. But they're not just, it's not just a new, I mean, while, while there's been a week that's transpassed for us, for them, it's just a matter of hours that they've gone through this terrifying, powerful storm. You can imagine they were, they were not certain whether they would survive, if, if they were going to make it, if they're going to come through this, or if they were going to die a, a difficult death in the water. And then they were shaken with great fear at the greater power of Jesus to command the wind and the sea. And so the disciples, they arrive on the shore, and you can imagine they, they're starting to spill out of the boat, and they're grateful to be on land again, and, and they think, I'm never going to get in the sea again. I'm not getting in a boat ride again. And they get out, and they're tired, they're exhausted, and they're frightened, and they are immediately confronted with a, with a shocking sight. There is a wild man, a powerful man, and he is running at them. He is filled with an unclean spirit. He is not wearing any clothes, and they can see that he's bleeding in various places, and he's, he's bruised all over his body, and he is shouting out as he runs at them. 
Can you imagine this? Consider in your own mind how terrifying and chaotic this scene seemed. Consider also this, this wild man. In, in his commentary on, on the Gospel of Mark, James Edwards writes this. He says, the, the description of this man, of this demoniac, is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. Mark's description is more fitting of a ferocious animal than of a human being. You can imagine what was going on in the minds of these disciples. They were startled, no doubt, frightened, certainly. They were probably wondering why in the world Jesus decided to cross over to this Gentile land, a place known to be unclean for Jews. The land of the garrisons was a place where no faithful Jew would want to go for any reason whatsoever. Why did Jesus say that's where we're going? Why did he take them there? And here, they meet a man with an unclean spirit, living in unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all in unclean Gentile territory. Contrary to all reason and all expectation, however, Jesus insisted upon going there. He had an agenda to perform. He had a man to redeem. He, Jesus was launching an attack. He was launching a gospel offensive. David Garland describes the mission this way. He says, Jesus embarks on a daring invasion to claim alien turf under enemy occupation and reveals that there is no place in the world into which God's reign does not intend to extend itself. The confrontation that ensues reveals that every square inch at sea and on the land will be contested by Satan. So, Satan sees what, what, what Jesus is doing, and he wants to contest this work, right? He seizes this man. He sends demons to harass this man. This man was demonized. He was desperate. He was out of his mind and utterly helpless to, to deliver himself, to rescue himself, to, to come into his right mind. He was utterly powerless. While they had been able to restrain him with chains in the past, the community was now powerless. They couldn't wrap him in ropes or chains. They could not bind him or restrain him or get him under control. He was completely outside of their realm to control. No one could control him. He was in complete bondage to the will of the demons that harassed him. He was utterly powerless to break free. And as he ran toward the disciples and towards Jesus, what does he do? Look in your Bibles, verse 6. He runs and he falls down before Jesus. And with a loud voice, he cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, isn't this amazing? This demonized man knows who Jesus is. It makes you think of that verse in James that, that even the demons believe and tremble. This demonized man knows who Jesus is, not simply his name, but he calls him the son of the most high God. Now, think about this because the disciples, the disciples had just questioned among themselves who Jesus truly is. 
The crowds are puzzled as to what's going on. The Pharisees are suspicious of who he was claiming to be. And here this demonized man, he knows him. And he is afraid. Jesus asks him for his name, and he says, it is legion, for we are many. Now, a, a Roman legion was somewhere in the, in the range of 5,000 and 6,000 soldiers. Okay, so when he says he is legion, what the, the, the point here is that while the man, you remember in Mark chapter 1, Bart preached this passage about the man who is delivered from an unclean spirit. This man had not one, but thousands of unclean spirits that were harassing him. About how intimidating that is and how helpless you feel. He was utterly powerless, controlled by the legion of unclean spirits. This man begs Jesus, which illustrates that he recognized the authority of Jesus, and he begs him to send them into a herd of pigs rather than banish them out of the country. And it's a request that Jesus grants. The unclean spirits enter the pigs, and you know what happens? The pigs rush into the sea and are drowned. Now, what a curious moment this is. There is no shortage of speculation of what exactly is going on here, but this is what we know. We know that Jesus did not negotiate with the unclean spirits. He wasn't trying to barter for the man. He was the one that held all the cards. The unclean spirits were bent on the ruination of their host, and rather, Jesus condemned them to utter destruction. The fact, here's the thing, pigs do not have a herd mentality, okay? Cows, you do. Cows, you walk up behind, you kind of moo, and they start to all move in the right direction. Pigs are not like that. They don't have a herd mentality. You know what else? Pigs are actually quite excellent swimmers. I didn't know that. And this week, I was talking to Brother Bart over here, and, and Bart knows lots of things about everything. And he says, oh, yeah, they're great swimmers. They, they'll, do, they'll do splendidly. They will last in the water. So why do these pigs run together and then drown in the sea? It's because Jesus was displaying his power for the complete abolition of these demons. This was no accident unforeseen. He, would, he simply would not allow these demons... Uh, the ongoing ability to ruin the lives of another single person. See, they were trying to persist in the land. He said, no, you will have no dominion here. You will not persist. This is his creation. Jesus is coming back, and it's like this. He, he looks, and he says, no, absolutely not. This is not okay. You demons may not abuse my creation. This man is created in my image. He belongs to me, and I will restore him. If nothing else, the, the detail of the pigs demonstrates the, the reality of what is happening. See, a lot of people that you know, have, have a materialistic worldview, they would read the story, <laughs> and apart from the pigs, they, they might just say, this, this man was clearly, he had psychological problems. He was in need of, of psychiatric attention. But that wasn't the case. That may be a reality for, for some of us today, and we're grateful for, for medical professionals and institutions, but here... What we see is actual, real, demonic activity. This man was not mentally struggling. He was spiritually embattled. There's a reality there. There's a force at play in his life. And Jesus came into the world, remember, Mark 3.27, to bind the strong man 
He came to plunder his house. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to set the captives free, and that is what we see here. Jesus displayed his power over Satan and all his devices. Jesus' power is unstoppable. His authority is unrivaled. Jesus is Lord, and all creation bows before his will, and there is nothing and no one, no, no army of Satan that can thwart it, no power that can rival it. This passage shows us today there is no earthly or spiritual power that is beyond Jesus' ability to tame and restrain. There is no situation that is too far gone, no situation, no individual that is too hopeless. At no point while we have breath in our lungs is the power of God to deliver us unavailable. Jesus is mighty to save. So, where do you sense your need for the power of God to work on your behalf today? Where do you long for the power of redemption? Where or who do you look at and long to see God deliver them? Depression. What struggle do you need to see the Lord at work? Mark chapter 5 shows us that the power of God is unrivaled and will not be thwarted. Not just in the destruction of the work of the devil, but also in the redemption of his people. So take heart, child of God. Take heart. Look to Jesus who is able to redeem the most unlikely of situations, the most desperate of moments when you feel hopeless. He is able, so look to Jesus. He is able to completely redeem, which, which leads us into scene two. Jesus' power to completely redeem. So the pigs drown in the sea, and the herdsmen see what happened. You can imagine, they see them in the water, and they're not worried. The pigs can swim, but they drown all of them. And the herdsmen are terrified. And they ran. And think about this. They, these herdsmen who knew this demonized man and were all terrified of him are no longer terrified of that man. They're terrified of a greater power in their presence. They, they're scared off by him. They're likely confused. And so they ran away into the city and into the country and they told others. And the people came to see for themselves what had happened, and, and what did they find? Look at verse 15. Mark describes this formerly demonized man with, with three contrasting elements. Think about who he was. Now read what he's like. They found him sitting, not running about wildly. He was clothed. Was no longer naked, and he was in his right mind, and the people were afraid. This is how people respond to the power of God throughout Scripture and all of history. You think about it, every time an angel of God appears, the people fall down in fear. Every time that the God speaks from the mountain, the Israelites tremble. When Isaiah sees God in his splendor, he shakes and, and, and at, cries out for mercy. When the disciples see Jesus' power over the wind and the waves, they were filled with great fear, it says. And so the people respond in fear, and then we read one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture, verse 17, they began to beg Jesus 
to depart from their region. David Garland describes the situation this way. He says, the, this benighted community becomes another example of the outsiders who see but do not see, who hear what happens but who do not hear. They do not recognize the help that Jesus offers, and they do not invite Him to stay or to bring their sick and demonized to Him. They, they chase off the source of their deliverance and salvation. He says, people can tolerate religion as long as it does not affect business profits. This shows us that you know, there's been so many times, right, that you've had someone, maybe you've said this before, well, if the Lord would, would show up to me the way he showed up to Moses, if the Lord, if I witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, then I would believe. If I saw the power of God on display, then I would follow him. But this passage shows us that that, that is, it's not true. Not everyone who sees the power of God responds in humility and faith. For, for many, it simply hardens their hearts as it did here. You think of Pharaoh and countless others throughout Scripture and, and in history, especially when, it, especially when it costs them something. But the hope for the believer is that Jesus' power is unrivaled in all of creation. Here, here we see it leveraged, not simply in judgment on an army of demons, we see the power of Jesus leveraged for the redemption of a man created in the image of God. You imagine the scene. Picture this man that everyone knew to be not just unclean, but he was wild and, and, and powerful. He was always hurting himself. He was a threat to everyone. He was always screaming and, and cursing, and no one could restrain him. No one could persuade him to calm down. You imagine you see this man and you keep your distance. If you see him walking down the street, you would run to the other side, right? Now, imagine this was someone that you knew. Imagine this is someone that you just saw slowly declining, rapidly, progressively. Imagine this is your child. This is your son. Imagine this is your estranged brother. And you saw the apparent self-destruction come over him, and you, and you had warned, and you had appealed, and you tried everything, you tried to get him help, and you just felt so utterly helpless. But then, in steps Jesus, not just a teacher, but someone to deliver him from the darkness and despair, not just a merciful friend, but someone who can redeem him completely. He didn't simply love on him and, and put his arm around him and, and weep with him, but he had power to change him and to redeem him, to restore his humanity, to give this man back his God-given dignity. That's what Jesus does here. Imagine what it was like at that moment for this man who knew helplessness and weakness and who abused his body because he was so desperate and discouraged. And in this moment, he was given freedom from his shame and his condemnation. This man didn't look at him with fear and trembling. He didn't look at him with disdain, but he looked at him with compassion. And he helped him to stand up straight. 
invited him to sit close as a friend. Jesus freed him and redeemed him. What power, what mercy, what grace. Imagine what what happened in this man's heart. Friends, do you believe that this same Jesus can redeem your situation? Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to free you from from your bondage, from your struggle that you've tried so hard to battle against, from your shame? Have you given into despair that you will ever be able to finally have victory or to deliver yourself or ever make any real lasting progress? Have you written off that friend or that loved one, the one that you've talked to so many times warned him, you've tried to help him, and you just see nothing. You just see a blank stare. You've written them off because you can't imagine them ever being restored. Have you bought into the lie of the enemy that you may as well give up trying to change because you've tried so hard for so long and to no avail? Are you tired? Are you weary? Do you feel hopeless? Friends, What we see here is that Jesus is in the business of redemption. He's in the business of restoration. That is what he's about. His power is unrivaled. His his purpose will stand. He He desires your restoration, and his desires will not be thwarted. They will not, cannot be stopped. You and your loved ones, those you think are most irredeemable, Jesus looks at with compassion, and he is not put off. He is undeterred. He is able to save, and not just a little bit, but He is able to redeem completely, to restore utterly, to the uttermost. What we see in the man of the tombs is a foretaste of what you and I will one day finally and fully experience when Jesus comes back again. He will fully, completely redeem and restore all of His creation. And until that day, His kingdom, it's already here and at work. He is right now working and redeeming on behalf of all that are His. So, you and I, we can look to Him with confidence. We can go to Him in expectation. We can pray to Him with joyful anticipation. We can say with firm resolution and conviction that the power of God for redemption in my life And in anyone on whom the Lord sets his sights will not be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. So friends, I want to encourage you, take heart. Don't give up. Press in. Don't give in to despair. With with Jesus, we have hope for glorious and complete redemption. And when we encounter his power, it provokes a passionate response in our lives. Which leads us to our final scene, scene three. Jesus' power provokes proclamation. If I could say that just a little bit longer, I would say Jesus' power of redemption provokes passionate proclamation. You see, there is no indifference when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't come into people's lives and, and they kind of say, eh. They respond in various ways, in fear, in anger, in faith. There is no indifference. 
While the people respond in fear and beg Jesus to depart, the man responds with a different request. He, he begged Jesus that he might be with Jesus. He wanted to follow him. He wanted to learn from him. And in a surprising twist of events, Jesus denies this request. This is stunning. The demons had a request, and the people had a request, and, and the man had a request, and, and Jesus granted two of them, and not the one that you would expect him to grant. He told the man that he could not go with him. He, he wouldn't permit it. Now, why was that? In contrast to the others, this, this was a good request. Why would Jesus withhold this man's desire? Why would he withhold from this man what he commanded of others to, to, to get up and, and to follow him? Why would he do that? We look in, in this chapter and, we, and we're not told. We simply do not know why Jesus denied his request. Many have speculated that it was because the, the 12 were already established or that since he was a Gentile, his involvement would have been an, an unnecessary stumbling block to the Jews. And there's, there's other reasons that, that, we could, that we could wonder about. But this is what we must affirm is that there is, is no explanation given. And that's how it often is with God's mysterious providence. We don't always know why the Lord governs our lives the way He does, why He directs our paths this way and not that. Sometimes the life that the Lord appoints for us and the path that He sets us on doesn't line up with our desires or, or our preferences. It's not the way that we would order our situation in our lives, whether it be a job or a relationship, our, our health any number of good desires that we have. And it's in these moments when we don't understand His plan that we, that we look to Him and we, and we trust who He is. We know that His ways are not our ways. We trust that someday we will see and understand. And in this instance, while, while the reason for His decision is not made clear, the result of it certainly is. This man wasn't put off by the Lord's providence. This man, once filled with shame and condemnation and now restored and redeemed, was commissioned. He was commissioned to go home and to proclaim how much the Lord had done for him. Jesus told him to go to his family and to his friends, to the community that knew him, and to display the works of the Lord in his life. They were so clearly apparent. I mean, everybody, you think about this man coming home, and you see him, and you're nervous, but you see him, and, and he's, he's not like running wildly about. He's got clothes on. Thank the Lord. And, he, and he's not screaming and, and cursing. You see him in his right mind. He, he comes in and, and, and you're curious and you want to draw in. He was commissioned to proclaim the mercy and the power of the Lord in his life. While he may have been understandably saddened by Jesus' denial, his refusal to grant his desire, you can imagine the joy with which he received his new appointment. Jesus considered him worthy. Jesus didn't just redeem him and say, okay, you can come in, but if you just kind of sit in the back and, you know, just don't interact with people too much, you know, you're, you're kind of, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, you got a long way to go. No, Jesus considered this man worthy. 
worthy to live as His ambassador, worthy to testify to His grace and His glory, worthy to invite others to do the same. Friends, we're, we're all naturally passionate when it comes to those things that light us up, right? What is it that lights you up? I got a, a new smoker recently. Been so excited about this thing. Many of you have heard me talking about this. I will send you pictures of the things that I create with a smoker. With sons who hunt and, and more than one freezer full of meat, I have a newfound passion for discovering recipes and finding new ways to prepare wild game and fish and poultry that delight my taste buds and those of my family and my friends. I love it. So much fun. It's a, it's a hobby all of a sudden. Who knew that cooking could be so much fun? If you want to talk about the best way to get your brisket to have a nice bark or to how to properly inject some, some interesting flavors into your venison, this is one of the things we can have passionate and energetic conversations about. I've got all kinds of theories. I could talk for hours about it. What is it for you that just lights you up, that you love to talk about? Is it what you want it to be? What, what, what is it for you that you love to proclaim? As Christians that have benefited from the mercy of God, we, we want to cultivate a passion for proclamation of the power of God in our lives, don't we? J.C. Ryle gives us these questions to consider. He says, have we anything to tell others? Can we testify to any work of grace in our hearts? Have we experienced any deliverance from the power of the world the flesh, and the devil? Have we ever tasted the graciousness of Christ? Friends, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then we have so much to proclaim, so much greater than, than, than the best brisket you could ever make, so much greater than your, than your favorite hobby or the greatest victory you've ever had in your life. We have so much to proclaim. But if not, if we find ourselves lacking and, and just searching for what can I say? It, it may be that, that you've not yet been born again. It may be that, that you have not yet tasted of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and experienced His power for redemption. Because when you do, then and only then will you be awestruck and lost in a sense of, of wonder and mercy. You just think about this man and, and how he was lost in his worship of this man, and he just wanted to tell everyone about him. The man in Mark chapter 5 experienced God's power for redemption, and when he was commissioned to go and tell, he obeyed. He proclaimed the power and the mercy of Jesus, and you know how they responded. Verse 20, they marveled. They saw this man restored and redeemed, and they marveled. And brothers and sisters, Jesus commissions you and I today as well. For all those that have experienced His redeeming love and, and the power of His mercy, He commissions us to go and proclaim not to wait for people to ask, not to be willing if somebody knocks on my door, pray that they do, but to go 
which requires intentionality. It requires a passion for the gospel as we've experienced in our lives. It requires strength of conviction in our own souls that God has done a magnificently merciful work in my life and in yours. Jesus' power to redeem provokes a passionate response in our hearts and from our lips. If you don't have that passion, pay attention to that. Look at that. Why is that? It may be that it may be that you think too little of what he has done for you. It may be that you think little of the power of God to actually save. It may be that you think little of those around you. Maybe you consider they're not worth saving. Maybe, maybe they deserve the judgment coming, just like you and me. Maybe we think that they, there's no way that that individual could ever be saved. There is simply no person, friends. Look at the man in Mark chapter 5. Nobody would have predicted this man to be redeemed and to be the object of Jesus Christ's mercy and affection. There is no person walking this earth today, or whoever will, that the power of God cannot redeem. Maybe you don't have this passion because while you read this story and you hear others, you think, okay, now that man has a story to proclaim. That's a radical testimony. If I had that testimony, I would proclaim it from the, from the mountaintops, right? But my story is, it, it's, it's rather boring. I grew up in the church, heard it all my life, believed from a young age, was baptized and never gave in to any kind of scandalous sin. What's so marvelous about that? Friends, as the, as the father of five, I'm, I, I, these are the testimonies I pray every one of my kids have. I trust the Lord for whatever story he's going to write in their lives. But every one of these stories of the grace of God in our lives is marvelous. Every one of them is amazing. Every one of them is praiseworthy. Regardless of when and under what circumstances the Lord has saved you, let me remind you of the truth of the matter. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, it's you and me, doing this, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Two of the most glorious words in the entire Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, uh, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you and I were dead at five, at 45, whenever the Lord met you and confronted you and, and redeemed you, we were dead. There is no more hopeless situation than being dead. Dead bones can't bring themselves to life. They can't clean themselves up. We were dead, but God saved us and redeemed us, and now He commissions us to proclaim His marvelous grace. 
Every testimony of God's grace is breathtakingly glorious. Do not think little of His having saved you. As if that's no big deal for Him to raise you from the dead. Listen, if you find a lack of passion in your heart to proclaim the work of the Lord to everyone you know, let me encourage you to read those seven verses in Ephesians chapter 2, to, to memorize them, to consider what the Lord has done for you, to meditate on the truth of the gospel every day. Never take for granted your salvation. Never grow familiar with the story of His grace. Never think for a moment that, I mean, it kind of makes sense that God saved me. It doesn't. To consider that the holy God of the universe has had mercy on you and continues, He continues to demonstrate His patience toward you in your ongoing battle with sin and rebellion. And He will one day present you spotless, blameless, perfect in splendor. Friends, consider that reality. Think of it often. Sing of it when you're driving and maybe when you're walking, if you have a good voice. Consider that and then look out at the world and see, see the masses and consider their helpless condition. They are powerless to save themselves. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And Cultivate compassion in your heart and, and resolve to live your life proclaiming what He has done for you. It's, it's often where it just starts, just talking about what has the Lord done in your life. That's what Jesus told this man. Just go and tell him, what, what's he done in your life? So friends, what, what is it that he's done in your life? What has the Lord done in your life? Think about it. Has he saved you from a life of sinful self-destruction? Has he given you grace to persevere in the midst of suffering and in trial? Has he helped you overcome fear, worry, anxiety? Has he, has he saved your marriage from the depths of despair? Is he working in you even now in unforeseen, unnoticed ways? What has the Lord done in your life? Again, our friend J.C. Ryle helps us here. And he writes, if we have anything to tell others about Christ, let us resolve to tell it. Let us not be silent. If we have found peace and rest in the gospel, let us speak to our relations and friends and families and neighbors according as we have opportunity and, and tell them what the Lord has done for our souls. All are not called to be ministers, all they're not intended to preach, but all can walk in the footsteps of Andrew and, and Philip and the, the Samaritan woman. Happy is he who is not ashamed to say to others, come and hear what the Lord has done for my soul. What has the Lord done for you? What has he delivered you from? What has He given you grace in? Where do you see Him at work? Identify that, celebrate that, and proclaim that. Friends, let us leave here today changed. 
Let us leave here today full of conviction of the unrivaled power of God to redeem. Let us pray for a renewed passion to proclaim it. Tell your, <clears throat> tell your family how much the Lord has done for you. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. <clears throat> Learn their names. Get to know them and, and look for ways to tell them the story of what God has done in your life. Tell your coworkers. Tell Tell the medical staff as you're laying there in bed, in the hospital bed, wondering, well, I, I guess I'm out of the game. No, tell them too. I love the stories of, of dear friends who, who lie in hospital beds and, and they say, well, okay, well, the Lord wants me to reach these nurses and, and these technicians and these doctors. As you have opportunity, look around. Who would the Lord call you? Tell everyone. Invite them to experience the same grace that you have received. Our God is mighty to save. Amen? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. What power. What a hope. What a promise. What a Savior. Join me in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, we read this story this morning. And Father, we... It's an incredible story, Father, to see your power on display. I mean, it is no wonder that many people look at your book and say, this cannot be. These things cannot happen. Pigs do not behave this way. Men do not behave this way. But, Father, here we see your unrivaled power on display. We see your power at work for redemption. And, Father, we pray that you would... Grant us faith, faith to see and believe, to respond as, as this man now delivered and not as the crowd. Help us to see and to worship. Give us strength of conviction, Father, that our God is mighty to save, that there is no situation too far gone for Him to redeem. There is always hope with the Lord that today we can go home and, and be reconciled to, to that person that we're estranged with, that, that today we can experience deliverance and strength to persevere in trial, that today we can experience power to overcome that temptation. And Father, as you do so, I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate, as we're about to sing, Lord, that you would cultivate a song in our hearts from the depths of our soul. Joy, gladness, and then we would leave here passionate to proclaim your grace. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.